today I welcome Josh Pretzer, Dean of Faculty at Carver Academies in the USA. In this episode, we talk about how to build a collegial faculty, the value of competency-based learning, knowledge versus skills, and why research projects help professional development. You've been at Culver Academies for 24 years and on the administrative team since 2006, building a truly collegial faculty. What are some of the strategies we've employed to encourage teamwork amongst faculty members? Yeah, I think the very first is just to define what collegiality is. I worry about having so many buzzwords in education and then not sort of pulling them down and grounding them in reality. I think our first step was to bring a group of people together around a table and say, well, what does collegiality mean and what does it mean for us? And we borrowed pretty heavily from Judith Warren Little, who studied and defined what collegiality in schools looks like. And for us, it's about uh, seeing others in practice so doors are open and being able to visit one another's classroom to see student learning happening, having open dialogue and conversations around that practice, uh, feeling a real sense of responsibility to share your practice with one another, both in sort of formal ways, so I'll present out and do what I do, but then also in more concrete, precise ways where we might talk about student work or grounded in student work through a standard protocol for an hour to come to some resolution or provide some feedback. And so for us, we really try to define what it means. Then you have to put the currency of school to it, and that's time. So making sure that people have the right time and structure to enable themselves to learn from one another. So I think for us, it's about defining it and then providing the time and structure for folks to be able to do that. And do you look to recruit a certain type of teacher then to fit into that collegiate model? It's a mindset, a different way of operating. Yeah. So I think when we go out to recruit for folks, we talk about four commitments of an educator here at the school. And so at Culver, you need to be first and foremost committed to the mission of the school, which for us centers around leadership, responsible citizenship, and the development of character. And you have to value that as much as you value your discipline itself. Be willing to design experiences that will allow students to develop the skills that relate to that as much as the discipline. The second commitment is to understanding a set model for teaching and learning. A third commitment is to your own professional growth and always be a learner. But we state the fourth commitment is to collegiality um, in the very first interview that we have, and then ask folks what that means, how they've experienced being a colleague. Pretty frequently, the response is that they haven't had that opportunity, or the school is too busy, or there isn't time to do that, or the time is in addition to. So the experiences feel rushed. But most people who end up making it through the interview process, that's the piece they've been craving, or that's of the four commitments. That's the commitment that really tips the scales for them is the ability to have colleagues all teaching the same course, have a common block of time off within the school day, and really truly plan together the experiences and review the experience of students. It takes an assessment between having sort of the ultimate freedom of just, I'm going to close my doors and do my own thing, and being clear with people that that's not who we are, to understanding that we just adopt the ethos of the school, which is the collective over the individual. So we do a lot of work assessing that sign. And is it easy to identify the benefits to students with this approach? Yes. So I think um, if you listen to kids talk, you think about the experience that they're living, it's enriched by the power of the group. And so in my own experience teaching on teams, uh, I've designed leadership courses and chemistry courses with groups of teachers. I know whatever I put in the room has been made better by the power of the group. And I can see that then in the ways in which kids perform. I can see my colleague Phil Cook's work in what my students are doing, because that was his idea. Like that was his sort of way of framing it that worked for my students. So I can see it. I think students appreciate it. 
they appreciate that they're getting consistent feedback across courses, but that they also feel their own teacher's voice in the experience itself. 24 years, there's been an enormous amount of change. And when you think about you kind of joining before the millennium, the millennium bug was all around technology. The dot-com boom was just this fun thing that it was in everybody's minds. How have you managed to keep up with change during that time? For me, it's been a real blessing to have the perspective of where we were to where we are now. The ways in which we've enabled change here have been structural and then really sort of adopted by the people who are responsible to them. I'm not responsible for this system, but it's brilliant. And so what we do here is we have triennial reviews where departments each sort of lay out what they'd like to work on over the next two or three years. They're able to invite experts in that space to come and review the department, give feedback and leave that department with a report. They lay out goals that are blessed by the community and the administration. They pursue those goals. And so having a set structure for how every three years departments are able to own their change that's in concert with the ways in which the school is moving or, you know, always better live our mission has been the way I've seen change enabled here. Whether that's changed because there's um, a new technology, that might be something small that contributes to what a change is, even if it's felt nationally large. But it's really around a group of adults figuring out where students are, like interrogating reality of where kids are and what they understand now, and then how to help them approach the mission or the vision of the school um, a little bit more thoughtfully. I think Simon, that system has been what's propelled change and what I've seen and how I've seen change happen. And you obviously embrace change, you know, just look at the CV being at one place for 24 years. It's to not rock the boat for status quo. In your DNA, you must enjoy change. How does Josh keep fresh? Because, you know, you got to motivate the motivator. You've got to keep the person leading the charge needs to stay ahead of it with so much change going on. How do you keep at the forefront of change and bringing in the pedagogy and these new kind of ways of which to teach these students? A mentor of mine would share that change is a process and not an event. I keep that in the back of my head all the time is what's the process that other schools are going through, other nonprofits are going through, other communities are going through, and then how does the ways in which they're working through change impact us or could impact us? Probably my top character strength is around perspective and being at a place, the same place for 24 years, I've felt a professional responsibility to gain perspective by being connected to outside organizations pretty consistently and try to find places that that are thought leaders in independent schools or connect myself with colleagues at other schools that have missions that resonate with ours. Even if they're not the same, but they have some similar aspects around the whole child or maybe a school that also focuses on leadership and citizenship and to study their processes pretty carefully and read with those individuals and have conversations with teachers from around the country about the work that they're doing. So for me, what nourishes me is a sustained group of friends that I have, really the world, that we connect on a regular basis and talk about our practice, and then always finding new communities that are thinking thoughtfully about school change. I'm a big believer that schools need uh, relatively large initiatives on regular cycles just to go revisit their work. I appreciate that people talk about cycles cynically and say, you know, I can't believe we're going for another cycle of this. We've already done it. I think they're very, very important. And so that you restate and reaffirm what you value as a community and what it looks like lived for the students, you know, every decade or so in some sort of big movement. So I look for things that will give us that opportunity to be reflective practitioners and intentionally review our practice with our students. 
Yeah, and that can be seen, you know, as I've noticed that you've pursued professional development opportunities, you've got processing, research, and you've got best practices, and you've been putting these into action at both Culver and in national level projects. How do you balance implementing things learned through research and then responding to the unique needs of the Culver community? Our mission is a really nice lens to look through and decide whether what I might be reading about in a national conversation or the experience someone might be sharing with me in a conversation through a Klingenstein event that I'm at would benefit our community. Sometimes I like saying Peter Senge's talk about tension that exists between reality and vision. And uh, here the vision at Culver is around being uh, the very best whole person education community that we can be. The reality is what's happening on the street. And as I listen to ideas that are out there or frameworks that we might use to reflect, I just try to think about how much tension it does it align with our vision. And if so, how much tension does it bring between reality? If it's too much for our community, then it's not something I want to bring into our community right away, or I want to bring to the full community, maybe a pocket of folks. If it's not enough, then it's not worth doing. So if there's not enough tension between those two items, it's not going to propel change. Does it align with our vision? And if so, like how much tension is there between that initiative, that idea, and the reality that we're living here? And there's no sense in putting something that won't move us or will break us. As you mentioned about tension, I always talk about friction. I think you do need this kind of happy sense of friction because not everything in life is smooth running. And actually, students need to see you testing new things. They may not work out how you see them and how they want to work it, but actually you go through that process. How do leaders determine which strategies are relevant to a school? Is it a small group of you? Is it consultative with a wider group? So I'm a big believer in pilot projects. I think if you try something in a smaller group, and then you really study it, you really question it, and you share it out with folks, I think that's the way that we've been able to assess whether something's right for the community or not. For me, it's the right smaller group. Like, do we have the right people in the room is a question I'm going to ask each time we look at something new or each time that we start to develop processes for change. And sometimes the right people in the room are um, my academic leadership team and those responsible to academic change. Sometimes the right people in the room are the leaders of all the various co-curriculars and academic programs that talk about the work. Sometimes the right people in the room are to have a group of faculty members that are inclined to the change. Sometimes the right people in the room are a group of faculty members who are not so inclined to the change. So I think so I'm going to think about how do we frame the idea for individuals? How do we give some authority and autonomy to those who might want to try it out? And then what's the right room to bring together to assess the idea? The other kind of parties to bring into it are obviously the students and the parents. How do you attract the right parents and the right students to who believe in your your vision, your mission, which you talked about a lot. Yeah, I think um, to use an example of a change active right now, we're interrogating our cell phone policy here in the community, trying to come to a policy that both prepares our students for what's to come and enhances community. We've empowered two faculty members that have a lot of passion around the topic. They're also both sort of kid piper type people. They have spent a good year like over communicating the message of what we understand about cell phones, bringing in experts to present, putting texts in front of kids, and really engaging students in the conversation. And then at the same time, putting all that information out in front of parents, trying to solicit their work. And we've looked at just broadly. So if we want parent feedback, let's put it out there broadly to ask parents to give us feedback around a topic that would impact everybody. Um, if we have a more specific topic than something like this, then we have a, a group of parent volunteers who are always willing to be that person who will step up and pilot an idea or help us navigate a change. But in the, the cell phone work that we're doing, I appreciate that we also then try things. 
this is a community that's willing to give something a shot. And so we worked with a cell phone company to have a, a cell phone light, or a, I think someone said it's a smartphone with a wise platform uh, to see how kids would respond to something that's a little bit more limited in their experience. And let's give it a shot for four weeks and let's review and see how it went for our community. And then we spend lots of time talking to kids. So last night I was in the barracks here, which is our, um, our CMA, our boys dorms, and just talking to them around what would be good aspects of the policy. How do we help communicate the importance of the collective over the individual when we lay out what you're coming to as the right guidelines for us in terms of the ways in which we use our cellular technology here on campus? I think we do that with other big changes in the community as well. Um, that's just the current uh, inactive one right now. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. You've implemented the competency-based learning, you know, focusing on students' demonstration of knowledge and skills. Why is that important? I think every school should share the ways in which you're operationalizing your mission. Maybe four or five years ago, someone asked, like, what's our aim? And I quickly said our mission. You know, we want every student to live our mission. And, you know, upon interrogation and kept picking out, like, what does that mean? What, is that, what are the outcomes of that? How do students live that? I can give examples, but I didn't have sort of a systematic answer. And I think that's what you want students to be able to reflect upon. That's how they're going to learn, is if you stayed out, here are core ideas that we believe in that operationalize our mission. Here's where you're going to be able to experience those teachers, coaches, advisors. They're designing experiences for you to live out these core competencies. And then you'll be able to assess yourself along the way. You'll receive feedback on them along the way. And so for me, the driver has been just to be more intentional about how students are living our mission for students to be able to learn against it. For our community, it's been a really nice, we are all on the same page about what our mission is. Even as we came to our five core competencies, which are centered around um, scholarly ways of thinking, communication, well-being, leadership, and citizenship. We had at the same time a parallel study by a marketing group studying Culver and engaging all the constituencies of Culver to say, what are the outcomes of a Culver education? What do we value about your Culver education? And internally, and then this more external or more broad-based search came to the same points of what we really truly believe in here. And so it's been also a nice affirmation that we know who we are, we care about our identity, and we're intentionally helping students seek it out, both in terms of how, what we design and how we use time. Uh, we're just midway through it, Simon. So for us, we spent a good year coming to those five core competencies and what they may mean for our community. Another year engaging our adult community around what are the core learning goals affiliated with each one of those competencies that we want every student to experience in their full Culver experience. And now we've been practicing and talking about what do we need in place? What education do teachers need in order to live out those? And then next year, we'll start to talk with them about students and engage them in assessment work. Culver's a pretty uh, large boarding school. We have about 840 students who board here. And so we're just a complex, large organization. And these learning outcomes and the competencies will help bridge sort of silos of excellence all around campus between athletics and the arts and academics and our uh, really immense residential life and leadership programming. And what are your views on the balance between knowledge and skills? Because that's always the hot topic within education. You know, employers want skills because they believe that knowledge is accessible anywhere. But then schools are all about knowledge. I love the five competencies and I like how you structure your kind of educational framework around it. Just tell me where you are right now with knowledge and skills. 
early on in my teaching career, I, I taught chemistry and uh, really to me, success was if I could get from chapters one to 26, I was feeling very, very good about myself. I could teach a little bit of bioorganic chemistry. And I really judged all of my success by how fast we moved through content. It wasn't very satisfying or motivating for students. And so my goal was to look like, is that really what college readiness means? That they've seen and experienced everything. And there was a, a wonderful study by a woman named Kelly Dieters, surveyed broadly colleges and universities about what do you really care about, specifically in chemistry, in terms of what students understand or are able to do. And the list was surprising to me as a young educator, because content knowledge that I may care about, the study of gas laws, or um, really intricacies of the atomic structure, it was like one or 2% of colleges and universities would say, that's what college readiness is. It was the skills, uh, the dispositions, the habits of mind that were at the top of that, that the practices, like laboratory practices. That study has influenced me greatly throughout my whole career. You have to know some things, but what you have to know can vary. I don't think there's sort of a set bit of knowledge that you have to touch on in a high school education in order for students to move on to the next level. And so instead, I really am around like, what are the skills or practices that students should have here at Culver that relate to those five core competencies? As teachers design experiences to let students practice those, what's the content that's going to drive that? We should ask students to understand some fundamental pieces. And then as a department or a community, what are the core pieces of that discipline that the students must wrestle with to be good citizens? What is the core content that students must wrestle with in order to be prepared for the world? Limiting it to that makes it a much smaller list of content that you want students to play with with you and a much larger group of skills. I'm not sure I answered your question directly, Simon, but that's how I think about it. Just around the curriculum, has it been easy to integrate? Because again, I speak to a lot of educators and there's a lot that needs to change with education and the way we educate and curriculum and time and balancing knowledge and skills and how they teach, how they learn, what they don't do. How have you found that you know, battling with a curriculum to get all of this stuff in, balancing all the things you've talked about? Yeah, no, it's not easy to integrate. Um, it takes an incredible amount of coordination and thought and practice. My meeting tomorrow is we're laying out sort of here are all the competencies and where departments said these are companies that we can be responsible to. These are learning goals that we think show up in our, our discipline that would be school-wide. And even just the structure of that takes a year to think out and map out and like thoughtfully say we do before we even talk about exactly how we do it. And then once you get down to the practice of it, um, I taught the, my art and chemistry class this year, and I limited it to two sort of school-wide learning goals that we practice in that class. And then, you know, the thoughtfully give feedback around the ways in which students do that in the context of the class was time-consuming. It took me hours to write good, thoughtful feedback around how a student was supporting conclusions, and then still feedback on the conclusion itself. And thinking about what evidence I would need or um, how I could really tap into what the student was thinking as they were processing how to write that conclusion is different than just the evidence of the conclusion itself. So I think you start to like dig down and ask yourself questions as a practitioner. It's what it makes teaching exciting. Like I love that part of being a teacher. But it's also what makes teaching pretty challenging and complex. And as someone who's responsible to teachers, challenging for me to make sure I have what they need and to act and support students and then to honestly feel encouraged by their work. And what about measurement? It's always a tough question here because, you know, it's great putting in new change. People always ask you about it, but how successful, how do you measure success, not just at a school level, but actually down to maybe track student progress and their own development? I was we laid out what the next three years look like. I think to the latter half of what you suggested, we owe teachers a more clear learning management system that would allow them to see how students are progressing with these school-wide goals. We don't have something like that quite yet. We have comments and you can 
take a look through the comments and ways in which the comments have evolved that lay out the strategies for students. We owe the community something that's a little bit more concrete. As I look beyond that, though, I think about the group that we really should assess are our most recent graduates, those who are out there in the college world and just a little bit beyond. And the most thoughtful assessment of our college students and a little bit beyond I've come into that we ask of our recent graduates is this poll by Purdue and Gallup. And they studied college success and boiled down to, I think, six different steps or six different traits of a successful college student. There are things like, have you found work that extends beyond the semester, the confines or structures of school? Have you connected thoughtfully with one trusted adult mentor in your discipline? And then just broadly, a few others like that. We ask those questions of our graduates on a regular basis. And then think about how we build those capacities in our students through the work that we might be doing at the competencies or the leadership system here or the classroom experience or the co-curriculars. So that data has been something we've collected over the last three years just to see how we benchmark and how we measure. And we measure quite well, but it's the stories then that that inspire students to share that help us review what we do with students here. And how... Do you see competency-based learning evolving in the future, obviously to align to what the changing world is needing? In terms of seeing how it evolves in the future for us in the near future, it's enabling students to be able to tell their story against some of these competencies. I saw a vision at one school where a student on stage was able to talk about their, uh, it was an academic competency around supporting conclusions and how they were pulling from different areas of their experience at this school to determine their strengths related to that, and then apply those strengths in an area where they weren't being successful. Students deserve that, and they deserve being able to see across um, disciplines and across experiences. So I think that's what I see in the near term. In the long term, I think schools are places of community. I hope that the ways in which people use competencies to reflect help take what we understand about how people learn and how we form community and enhance that. As we shift away from like, what do students need to know in order to be ready for the next steps? It's really, how do we develop humans to be ready to engage the bigger questions of the world? And I think competency work, as I've seen it develop in schools, does a lot of that. There's a lot of reflection on being citizens or being a well that I think are skills that we deserve to give kids good strategies for and enable them to practice here as they develop as secondary students and probably before. I really loved your language today. I mean, you talked about vision and mission values a lot, and it's something I talk about a lot, and I just feel schools have to live into it. And you also talked about each student being able to tell their story. That's really what it's about. And also schools need to tell their story. So I think what you're doing at Culver is incredible, and I'm really grateful that you could come on today and share what you're doing. I'm going to ask you one final question. I ask all my guests this, and this is for you to look into your crystal ball. And tell me what you think the future of education would look like in 2050. I bet a lot of people answer with like technology and some frames like that. And I don't think that's where my mind goes. So I think the role of schools, you know, that's like one, I've been in schools 24 years. It's about 24 more years or so. I hope schools embrace the fact that they are places of community in a society where I think places of community are less frequent. Um, Fewer people attend church, uh, community centers and community organizations are sparse. And so for the civic good, uh, schools have the responsibility of gathering community, really allowing students to wrestle with why we are together as a community to live out and reflect on ourselves and then our responsibilities to others. I don't know exactly um, a lot of things about what the future will look like and what will inform how students form arguments, whether sort of a virtual 
gathering of community will be the same as a, a residential. Certainly in my world at a boarding school, we will still be residential. Talking about why the community comes together and then continually enhancing the experience of students based on those values of community for the greater good is something that I hope schools focus in on down the road. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.